This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. And by our patrons, Zeb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Bree Smith, Robin Brown, Kim Hokinson, Jan Elise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Caitlin McTaggart, and Molly Moss. Thank you so much for being our patrons. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Strap on your corset and lace up your boots because we're headed to the Gilded Age today. Yes. What a time to be alive. A time when things were gilded, sparkly gold on the surface. Yeah. Perhaps rotten underneath. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it would have been a pretty exciting time to be alive just because of all the new inventions and discoveries and just massive change, especially in America. And the clothes. (laughs) So we're talking like 1870 to 1920. During the Gilded Age, the United States experienced the most explosive growth of any country in the history of the world. (laughs) And it wasn't a baby boom, it was immigration. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think would have made it such a fascinating time. Just like this constant flood of newcomers and this constant flood of new discoveries and innovations and ideas. Like, I guess we can kind of relate to it today. Maybe in the future, people will say the same thing about the early 21st century. Yeah, it does feel like this is the only time period that I can think of where the amount of change in one lifetime is just unfathomable. Ah, yeah. And so... We are going to go to one of the great immigration hubs of the Gilded Age, Boston. Yay! And there's one neighborhood there that, during the Gilded Age, was the center of society. The brand new real estate development of Back Bay, Boston. Oh! To mingle among the righteous, high and mighty of this great late Victorian era. The Boston (laughs) Brahmins. Yes! And we're going to go inside one of their houses, actually. It's a time capsule. Some historians say that the Boston Brahmins were as close to titled aristocracy Mm -hmm. as America ever got. Yeah. And of course, we are here with all the warm-hearted band of merry travelers on our (laughs) Lost Women of New England tour. Yay! Yep. Will everybody say hi? Hi! (laughs) Now you're going to be in the episode. Yay! What would it have been like to be born into that world? One thing that dominated Boston Brahmin culture was that idea of noblesse oblige. (laughs) You know, that as a Brahmin, you're obligated to be educated and cultured (laughs) and to contribute to the betterment of society. You're not just like a jerk rich person. (laughs) You're doing good. So you're wealthy beyond measure. You live in the poshest neighborhood there is, and you're a woman. So what can you do as an individual to make society better? Help the poors. Ah, yes. But how? Ah. That question and all its controversial answers (laughs) is what we'll be exploring today. And it is a question, of course, that is as relevant as ever. I 
I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Among the glorious souls who joined us on our Lost Women of New England tour was none other than the delightful and intelligent Sarah Hagland, who told us about the equally delightful and intelligent Ethel Gibson Allen as we walked through her very house. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Hagland. I am the museum program and curatorial assistant here at the Gibson House Museum. I just got my master's degree here in women's art history. Uh, so these things are really close to my heart and I'm excited to share a bit of that with you all today. So we actually do four different tours here in the house. So we give our general house tour, which covers, you know, who are the Gibsons? Why is this house here? Um, we also do a tour dedicated to the servants that worked here in the house. Um, we also have a tour dedicated to queer life here in Boston during the 19th century. Uh, in fact, because our museum founder, Charlie Gibson, was a gay man during this period, we know a lot about his life through his writings. Uh, and then we also do a tour dedicated to the Little Women movie from 2019, because this was one of the filming locations. Wow. Uh, Yes, so uh, this was Joe's boarding house and the publishing house. Closed the whole street down, they put hay all over it, so we've got some photos on the website if you're curious. This is Gibson House, the childhood and adulthood home of Ethel Gibson Allen, who was born in 1873. Oh, what a time to be born. <laughs> and she lived there with a very interesting cast of characters, from her wealthy widow granny, who actually bought the house. Catherine Hammond Gibson, she buys it all by herself. And she was a part of this group known as the Boston Brahmin. So this is the like top 1% uber wealthy, very social elite. And there are her parents and her two siblings and a whole slew of servants. Her name is Mary Ethel Gibson, although most notably we call her Ethel a lot in the house. That's how she was kind of referenced throughout her life. So that's how I'm going to reference her. Uh, and really why I wanted to highlight her was because I think she's very emblematic of this period, gives us a good sense for what it was like to be an elite woman in Victorian Boston and during the turn of the century. But she also broke the mold in a few different ways as well. Um, so we'll kind of follow her uh, throughout the footsteps here in the house. It was so dark inside, you remember? Yeah. Yeah. It was really surprising. Very Victorian. Victorians love their dark textiles and dark wood. Actually, when this house was first built, all the lighting would have been gas. Um, so constant source of flickering light, which then you can imagine the wallpaper here would have been quite special <laughs> with flickering light. Um, so this what's known as Japanese leather wallpaper was imported from Japan, but it is not leather. Uh, it's embossed paper with real gold leaf. 80% of the house is original to the family. Absolute time capsule. All right, so pile in here. This would have functioned like a formal living room. So this would have been a space that Ethel really would have grown up in here in the Gibson house. If you turn around for me, a woman of the hour on the left there as a young girl, Miss Mary Ethel. She's about five or six in that portrait. On her shoulder is her brother, Charlie, with the long hair. And on the far right in the color portrait is little Rosamond. So those are the Gibsons, all three generations that lived in this house, almost a full hundred years living here in the house. It's kind of hard to imagine someone growing up in a house like this, you know, chock full of furniture and some really expensive wallpaper and those sorts of things. But this is part of their daily life. 
She would have been getting, you know, French lessons, attending like a girl's school here down the road, while her brother would have been sent off to boarding school. Um, but they were really raised by a nanny here in the house. Her name was Mary McDonald. They called her Nan. She's an immigrant from Canada, and she lived with the family for 18 years. <laughs> Whenever I think of servants living in the home with them, I think of like Downton Abbey, like these grand country houses. <laughs> but these back bay houses are pretty compact. Yeah. You know, it's five floors, but it's just like, it's tight in yeah. there. There aren't really that many rooms. Yeah. Cool. Well, welcome to the basement. Yeah. Fancy, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. center of servant life. We are now in the kitchen here. That stove that is there on the wall, the brick set oven is original. I mean, it's literally built into the wall. Uh, number five on the industrial line of 1884. So height of technology for the day. Um, and that is where all hot water is coming in the house up until probably about 1900, 1910. So almost 50 years of hot water baths being needed starting here at the stove by the servants. Uh, two levels of ovens. We've also got the waffle iron there, which I love as well. You could customize your, your stove. So really the center for servant life was down here. The cook was a very highly specialized job and a majority of the roles here in the house were filled by women. So we're talking about the nanny, the cook, the ladies' maids, chambermaids, all of those would have been women's roles, um, largely filled by Irish immigrants moving here to Boston. Um, coming to work in domestic service. Uh, and this is where they would spend a majority of their day working down here, maybe having a bite to eat along their way. And most important thing in the room, above the door frame there. Those are call bells. So you can see they're numbered by each room of the house. Um, but the interesting thing about those bells is they all have an individual tone. So kind of like early versions of caller ID, right? You could just listen out. Exactly, exactly. Um, so they're working down here, yes. but they sleep on the fifth, fifth floor. floor. Yeah. With no water. I think it's likely there was no usable bathroom for the servants inside of the house. So either they had a chamber pot up in the fifth floor or maybe a privy on the coal shed. There are really blurred lines, especially for the children. Yeah. Really blurred lines between family and not family mm -hmm. especially if you're raised by the nanny you spend 24 7 with her and you yeah. see your parents maybe for a couple hours a day mm -hmm. and the children's room was upstairs with the servants yeah. rooms interestingly complicated emotional bonds being formed and then you grow up and are expected to treat servants like furniture right that the, yeah. the way you survive is by not feeling that they're people, so it's not an invasion of privacy. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, so like I said, a pretty standard upbringing. This was a very tight-knit community here in the Back Bay, even as it's being built. Uh, and she's born during all of this change. She's born about halfway into the Back Bay being filled in. So she's watching as the neighborhood is continuing to grow and change around her, um, and then would have been expected to kind of meet those certain expectations as a young woman in high society, learning French. Uh, she was also noted to having been very good at math at a young age, interestingly enough. Now, half of the year was spent away from Boston as they retreated to a grand country home, of course, <laughs> as you do, but rather than the countryside, you head to the seaside. <laughs> And they would go to Nahant, which is this little island north of Boston. 
It's far enough away to feel like a retreat, but it's still close enough that the big important men can take a steam ferry back into Boston every day. The Gibson's house is called 40 Steps because that's how many steps it is from the sea. Humble brag. Humble brag name. Yeah. There's a picture of it on the left wall there, 40 steps, that smaller picture. And Nahant is important kind of throughout her life, throughout her family's life. Her mother spent every summer in Nahant throughout her entire life. Ethel was actually born in Nahant. She lives and breathes Nahant. She Mm -hmm. loves it. It's her magical place, swimming and tide pools and sunshine. And Mm -hmm. their home has these famed acres of rose gardens and... And she has lots of playmates because most of the Boston Brahmins, they also summer in (laughs) Nahant, of course. So they brought their social circles with them. And one of the neighbor boys is called Freeman Allen. And he's two years older and they are two peas in a pod. Or maybe more like two firecrackers in a pod. (laughs) They both love action. They're all about swimming, climbing, Horses, hunting. He has a legendary granny, too. Hmm. None other than Harriet Beecher Stowe. Oh. And they are just always out having these grand adventures together. He's kind of like this daredevil. For example, this is my favorite anecdote about Freeman Allen as a child. Every year he staged what he called the Pulpit Rock Plunge. Hmm. And he would take this death-defying leap from a second story window over a picket fence and down into the Charles River (laughs) every year. He's great. (laughs) All right, so we'll make our way in here. This was the matriarch space. This was a woman's space here in the house. Now Rosamond as the mother of the home really would be running ship here. Uh, This is where she got a lot of her power here in society as well, being a mother, being a wife, planning a lot of family social events, a lot of the family meals. She's got her little desk in the back corner there. So this is also where servants would have been hired and fired in as well, this very room. Um, And for her daughters, this would have been an important space where they start to learn how to take on some of those roles uh, important for these, you know, elite women. And that was especially true for Ethel. So this is the pattern of life as the Boston Brahmins grow older. Education, culture, luxuriously beautiful summers, and the focus is kind of on developing your character. Hmm. It's very much a culture of what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to contribute to society? Hmm. And when Ethel's 18 and coming of age... She's planning her big coming out ball. There's all the usual society pomp. She lands on her life mission. She is going to help the poor, especially those in need of medical treatment who can't afford it. So in 1892, uh, Ethel and her mother Rosamond uh, are some of the founding members of what is known as the Vincent Club, a charitable organization to help support the Vincent Memorial Hospital, which was actually a hospital for working, poor, wage-earning women. The Gibsons kind of took this on, especially Ethel. 
So her mother would actually put on this big play as a way to raise money. Uh, and in their first year, 1892, when Ethel's only 19 years old, they raised $495 in one night, which would be equal to about $17,000 in today's money for the hospital. The hospital also was notably uh, run by two women MDs as well. So the following year, 1893, Ethel enters into society, 20 years old. She actually kept a very careful list of all the people that attended her coming out parties here in the house. But she also then had her kind of debutante ball with the Vincent Club's play that year that they had. But interestingly, Ethel, as a part of her coming out, chose to play the role of a man. Um, so we have image here. Um, she is the one kneeling here in this newspaper image in the wig. <laughs> Amazing. Dressing in a ridiculous wig as a man for her debut on yeah. the stage. And I love her sense of humor. She played Adonis Fickleton. To think as a young 20-year-old woman making your social debut, you choose to play the leading role of a man here in the play, which I just love. And she continues to really kind of lean into the theatrics. And in uh, 1895, then Ethel also put on a solo dance to raise money. Uh, here is an image of her here in her getup, what was known as the butterfly dance for the Vincent Club that year. Um, and the really notable thing about the Vincent Society was it was only women were allowed to be in attendance. So no men were allowed. This was a woman's space to raise their money. Um, but when Ethel was putting on this performance, the butterfly dance, scandal broke loose because a man had snuck in. Um, so. Scandal broke loose. Two nights ago, Boston's Vincent Club held its annual theatrical. We have learned that in spite of all precautions, a male reporter managed to make his way into the show, and all of Boston was exclaiming over his drawing of Mary Ethel Gibson pirouetting in her butterfly dance with such a display of leg as few Boston ladies had yet exposed to public view. Also, always love to point out in this space, we've got the two call bell cranks there on either side of the bed. So that is how the family would call for their servants. So the original pulleys and, and wires are all throughout the walls of the house. So they likely still work. We're not allowed to test them. And then in the bathroom, there's the electric call bell button beside the bathtub as well. Um, so, you know, you've got to be able to call your servants no matter what time of day it is. Turn the crank and it would ring the bells in the basement. Now, those servant bells are a great cause to stop and reflect. Because how much were servants paid back then? <laughs> Next to nothing. Yeah. It was just the way things were. These were almost always poor immigrant women who had no other options for work. I'd say it's like 85% of all the servants in all the houses of the Brahmins are Irish immigrants. Mm -hmm. If they fell ill, they would not be able to afford medical care. <laughs> They might end up in a charitable hospital, for example, <laughs> like St. Vincent's. Hmm. Food for thought. <laughs> Classic Gilded Age situation. Abstract charity is always much easier and more appealing than charity beginning at home. <laughs> So amazing. Yeah, especially because the St. Vincent's Hospital is especially aimed at the working poor. All of her employees. Amazing. Yeah. 
And I mean, at the same time, all the great giants of the Gilded Age, like, you know, J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie, yeah. have got the same situation going on where they're becoming billionaires and spending their money, all their money for public programs. But also when their own employees strike, yeah. they crush that strike ruthlessly and refuse to give an inch. It's yeah, the money. Just so fascinating. I will donate the money that I made on the backs of the working poor to aid the working poor. Of course, nobody, you know, puts your name on the building when you just pay your employees properly, so. Alrighty, folks. I shove us back here because grand reveal. So the space we're in is what's known as the music room here in the house. The family was very musical, but this was really the party space. This was the hosting space for the Gibsons. This is where Mary Ethel would have been having her coming out. Now, Ethel and Freeman, they've grown up together. But as he is a man and she is a woman, so Freeman heads off to Harvard and then on to whatever he wants. Really. <laughs> I mean, he graduated in 1893 and he is off. He goes on this long, epic journey down the Nile. He goes to Switzerland and becomes a master of mountain climbing. <laughs> and I feel like if Ethel has the same adventurous spirit that she has shown in her childhood, I'd imagine that she would want to go too. But yeah. she's a lady. So she looks around her. Where have I got relatives? <laughs> California. That's the other side of America. Yeah. And off she goes, age 23. Brought out some collections things for us to look at here. We have some things left from her trip to California. We have this photo book here. So I've marked a few pages to show you all. It's in pretty poor condition, like the, the book itself, the bindings are pretty worn. But my favorite thing is it opens up to an x-ray of her hand. Um, so the x-ray was discovered two years before she ventured to California. And I guess while she was there, she found someone who was doing something with x-rays and so you can see her ring there as well and she noted the hand of Mary Ethel Gibson there um, which I just opening it up it was such a surprise right and then here be careful not to hold the images we've got a great portrait taken of the family she was visiting in California she's here on the far left um, we also have this next one here I believe yeah so she's here on horseback which I just love that was her you know where she seemed most comfortable her scrapbooks and things always have all these pamphlets from different equestrian shows um, but I just love these this is her Look as well up oh. on carriage back smiling which again I, you know we often don't get to see people big smiles but in all of her photos she really often was smiling by 1900 Freeman is in Cuba and he's a physician for the US Army which has occupied Cuba and uh, their mission is to try to solve yellow fever hmm. he writes Ethel lots of interesting letters we have their letters throughout their friendship and so they grew up as friends and in a lot of her letters she was always calling him out. July 1st, 1900. Dear Ethel, to answer your letter satisfactorily, a personal interview would be better than a letter, and I do not pretend in this letter to adequately answer yours. The upshot of your letter is this. I know you to be a practical, clear-headed, and intelligent person. 
When, therefore, you accuse me of ungratefulness, selfishness, and egotism, I know that there must be something in it. But I do not see clearly exactly wherein I have been this guilty. Anyway, I do not care to try to defend myself, for if I have been neglecting and offending you, I must have been doing the same to my other friends. And I should like to learn to do better, and to learn little details or some method of improving in this regard which you may be willing to show me. But as I say, I recognize the force of your letter, and the direct fact is that I did neglect you, actually, although mentally, I still consider you to be one of my best friends. His character really comes through. He does heroic things, but you would never hear about it from him. Like, he voluntarily exposed himself to yellow fever while he was there to act as a kind of a lab rat to try to eradicate the disease. Wow. And he almost died. And in the end, yellow fever was eradicated. Hmm. He was never one to promote himself in any kind of way. Hmm. Her letters to him, we don't have many of. Um, this one he wrote to her when they were still just friends, when she traveled to California, drew this image of her up on horseback. <laughs> Female desperado, he writes at the bottom. He's drawn her with a, a knife in her mouth and a gun in the hand. Maybe gives us a sense for her kind of personality. September 22nd, 1900. Dear Ethel, I was very glad to get your letter as I feared that you did not intend writing me again. I will speak at once of a part of it that appeals to me as being perfectly true. You say that the whole beauty of having friends is to feel that you can depend on them. The trouble is I fail in the principle of making people feel that I am their friend, I suppose. While I admit that I have been selfish and thoughtless, you must consider that the changing circumstances your going to California and abroad, and my going abroad often, studying medicine and being in the hospital, have by mere physical causes made impossible the maintenance of so intimate a friendship as ours started out to be when we were both at Nahant. Yours faithfully, Freeman. In 1902, he's studying dermatology in Europe, but Ethel, she's got to Europe as well. But she does it the ladies' way, which is visiting relatives, you know, as a... You need an adult supervising you. Yeah. And all the while, they write letters, they stay connected, they become soul-bonded. Hmm. And then slowly the letters start to turn, maybe a little more tender, a little more romantic. Freeman eventually returns to Boston and takes a job as the first anesthesia specialist in America. Hmm. And he's working in a free women's hospital and a free children's hospital. Hmm. And finally, 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 way late in the game, they're engaged. Yay! June 1st, 1911. I've not got much more to say, except that I love you. I wish I could convey to you how much superior to anything else in the whole world I consider you. And how I love you and honor and respect you and how good I want to be to you, and that your principles and methods of life are what guide me from day to day and always will for the rest of my life. I think I understand your principles perfectly, and although at first I may not be able to absolutely go by them, yet I shall improve all the time. I say this principally with regard to the elimination of worry. It is not easy not to worry about little things like money like opposition of your family, health, but it will get easier as I learn to apply your principles. I realize that even worrying is quitting, and this is enabling me to eliminate it. 
I believe all you say about God, how God is love and how God gave us that day at Nahant, and how God gave me the nerve to ask you to marry me. I was thinking yesterday that people who are as sweet and as good as you need no religion because they are it themselves. I love you, my darling, sweet, lovely little Ethel, and I miss you terribly. Yours forever, Freeman. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. The Women's History Initiative highlights eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the Society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov UWH to learn more. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months. Just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. History.utah.gov slash U-W-H. June 4th, 1911. My sweet little love, I haven't got anything more to say except that I love you, love you, love you, and worship you, and adore you, and will forgive all your faults, and always be good, kind, and gentle to you. You make everybody love you. Oh, my darling little love, I love you so that I can't seem to believe it's really time that I have got you. It seems kind of dreamy to me now. I'm going home and to bed with your locket chained tight around my neck. Yours forever, Freeman. They got married in Nahant, of course. Of course. Did they do the plunge? <laughs> Shoot. They Together in full wedding gear out the window. <laughs> oh, they totally should have. Let's say they did. But the last thing, which I love, there it is. It is a white rose with a poem that was written on the day of her wedding by her soon-to-be husband. Mm -hmm. uh, so this Aww. is a rose she cut from her wedding. Uh, we have the photo of her wedding here. So she's there in the center with the long train beside Freeman Allen. But interestingly, too, the date of her wedding, I don't know if any of you saw it, was 1911. She was 38 years old when she got married, almost 40 years old, um, and they had a courtship for 10 to 15 years of her life. Um, so really it seemed to be a choice for both of them to wait to get married. It would have been quite uncommon for that day as well. And also here a photo of them a little later on, I believe late 1920s, uh, smiling at each other, which yeah. I just love. I believe it was taken at a kind of equestrian club, so he was also an avid adventure man, horseback rider, uh, so they would do that often throughout their lives. Um, so She's got a great smile. She oh, does, yeah. right? Yeah. Both of them are just beaming, joyful people. Yes, yeah. yeah. So now Ethel has moved a few houses down to join Freeman in his Grand Back Bay house. 
And by this point, Ethel has joined the boards of more charities. She is also on the board of the Channing Home, which provides medical care to women with tuberculosis, Hmm. which was one of the deadly killers of the age. Hmm. And she also is the director of the Tide Over League. You tide people over. Basically, Hmm. it's sick pay for people until they can return to work. Hmm. So again, the mentality is so interesting. It's like, oh, look at these problems our servants have. Sometimes they have tuberculosis and they can't work. So now what are we going to do? <laughs> so it's a really interesting mindset. Like solve the those specific problems rather than just give money directly to the person. Yep. That's how you contribute to the good of society in her world. Now, one cause that a lot of women in Boston are championing as the next great ethical issue of the day is votes for women. Yay! Will that make society better? Yes, she said. No. No, not at all. (laughs) Absolutely the wrong idea. (laughs) Actually, in 1914, when there was a pro-suffrage parade that was coming down Beacon Street, she and some of her friends here in the Back Bay sold red roses, red being the symbol of anti-suffrage, meant to decorate your houses, to show your opposition to the movement. They published sheet music about the perils of women voting. (laughs) I tracked it down at the Library of Congress. Would you like to hear it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I recruited singer Natalie Thompson to sing it for us. Hooray. And it has been stuck in my head all day. Suffragists say, happen what may, they'll win the coming fight. Twixt you and me, I don't agree. We're going to show them who's right. Token of love and a gift from above, loveliest flower that grows. Red, red, anti-suffrage rose, you're the flower that's best of all. You're better far than jonquils are. We're going to prove it in the fall. Sweetest flower in all the world, everybody knows. You're the the anti-suffrage cause. You're the red, red rose. In fact, Back Bay was kind of the heart of the anti-suffrage movement. Massachusetts was one of the first to have an anti-women's suffrage organization centered here in the Back Bay, hosted by women. Beacon Street, that very street, was known as enemy country by the suffragists here in town. Okay, let's talk about this. It was a hot debate at the time, and the arguments against women's suffrage weren't just, women are too stupid. You know, it was nothing that banal. Hmm. They were interesting nuanced arguments on both sides and there was a reason that the debate went on for so long Mm. so let's take ourselves back to 1914 okay olivia i will give you the easy job you get to be a suffragist (laughs) and i will take on the role of ethel gibson allen (laughs) i will try to convince you that women should not vote i find it so fascinating it's like a great mind-bending point of view that we don't hear about today. Hmm. Are you ready? Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I have 
six good reasons why women should not vote. Number one, first things first, women do not want the vote. And if we are going to listen to women, then we should do what women want. We tend to think like, oh, every reasonable woman was for suffrage. And the people who weren't were just sexist men saying like, women are stupid. But that's not what it was. The majority of women in 1914 were anti suffrage. Yes, because we've all been swimming in the patriarchy soup our whole lives. Okay. And just because we haven't awakened all women to their plight doesn't mean their plight doesn't exist. Okay. But so we selectively listen to women. We listen to women when we agree with what they're saying. And then when we don't agree with what they're saying, then we're like, oh, she's not awakened yet. So we will not be listening to her. Yep. (laughs) okay no my argument would be nobody has to vote women who don't want to vote don't have to vote but why should some women who don't want to vote prevent others from having the right to do so if they so choose great question i will answer it forthwith (laughs) with my point number two speaking of humanity as a whole in the long arc of human history here's what we believe in 1914 women will save the world by changing human nature. And we will change human nature, not in the halls of government. We are going to make home a harmonious and soothing place. We are going to be eating good, healthy foods. We are going to raise kids right. We are going to educate them and teach them to do good toward their fellow men. And we will, by doing all this collectively, steer humanity towards the better angels of our nature. Women will save the world by doing that. The answer is at home, not in the halls of government. Do you agree with me there? Great. That sounds awesome. And voting takes 10 minutes of one day of your year and you can take 10 minutes to also make your voice heard point taken and if we are better if we are morally better than men which was largely the argument shouldn't the people who are morally better be the ones making the decisions for society Uh uh-huh 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 i will refute it with my next point (laughs) Look what happens to men when they get involved in politics. No thank you. Constant anger rather than empathy. Constant conflict instead of collaboration. That is not the right way to go. So the world of politics is toxic. And if we were to join that world, we would just become as gross as all the men. It's the political world that does it, that is corrupting to human nature. We should stay away in order to save ourselves. Well, my early 19th century first wave self would say, perhaps politics is that way because we have deprived politics of the influence of we morally superior women. And perhaps Uh we are doing the greatest disservice to humankind by not bringing our morally superior, peaceful, empathetic viewpoint into politics and saving the men from their poor little selves. Okay. Why do you think so little of women as to believe that we would be tainted 
If we can do it in the home, why can't we do it in the halls of government? Fantastic. I think this might be the crux of our 1914 disagreement (laughs) right there. Because fundamentally, what we are disagreeing about is the political system that exists at the time Mm. and that still exists today. (laughs) Okay, so this is my point four. Point four. (laughs) The political system that we have is a male system built by males for males, and it is based on masculine energy. (laughs) If female energy, if harmony, empathy, collaboration, if that's going to save the world, why would we then take that energy and invest it into a political system that is clearly (laughs) conflict-based, that puts us in camps and tries to convince us that the other is the enemy? I mean, like, imagine if you just had all female energy creating a government, (laughs) what would it look like? It would not look like the system that some people are trying to get us to vote in. No. (laughs) Rather than opt into that, we should steer it in a completely different way. What do you say to that? Yes. So let's get the vote. Let's get the vote so we can do that, so we can change the system from this masculine, aggressive, um, conflict-based one to a communal decision-making system. We could do that the day after women get the vote. Okay, yes. And 1914, Ethel is saying that right there will be the deadly mistake. You can't fundamentally change a system based on conflict and based on aggression And you can't just fundamentally change it to have female energy instead. And the other thing is that you, you, 1914 Olivia, seem to have the misconception that a vote equals power (laughs) and influence in the community. But real power and influence in the community is shaping the children of tomorrow and deciding what the culture is going to value and heaping praise on acts of charity and shame on acts of selfishness. And that's the real power. And and that's what we should be focusing on. If instead we just focus on having a vote, we're going to steer America in completely the wrong direction. Then I guess we need to change all of society so that all of the women don't have to work for you. And they can (laughs) be at home shaping their children's lives instead of doing your laundry. Yes. Glad you came around. Let's do that. Let's do that today. (laughs) (laughs) Ha! Ooh, good point. (laughs) Touche. Point five, though, (laughs) to be clear, we're not saying no education for women. (laughs) And we're not saying women shouldn't be involved in public life. We are saying they are the heart and soul of community, including and maybe especially the servants. (laughs) Like, look at the homes that all the future Americans are being raised in. Such feminine energy everywhere. Even childless women who are cooks their entire lives, they are a huge part of the future of American culture. Yes, yes, we should definitely not change any of the systems that make your life easier, Ethel. You're right. <laughs> definitely we shouldn't shift the, ba- the balance of power away from the wealthy people to mm-hmm. the poor people. Okay, 1914 Olivia, you seem to think that 
if everyone votes, that will shift the balance of power away from wealthy people? I mean, it couldn't hurt. There's more poor women than rich women. <laughs> uh-huh. And and how will that shift the balance of power away from rich people? It won't, but the 1914 people think it will, which is why the rich women are so adamantly in support of anti-suffrage. Yes, but here's here's my final my final argument, point number 6. Here's the worldview that I think Ethel Gibson Allen is coming from. Do we make the world better through politics? No. That is a quagmire of grossness that will just toxify your soul and make you a sad waste of a person who hates everybody. <laughs> we make the world better through direct action in our communities. We should not hand that to a soulless indirect government program. We should not get sucked into the idea that politics and government is going to be the way forward to make society better and more equal. If we do that, we will build the future of America on the wrong foundation, and it is a foundation constructed entirely in male energy, and it will be the wrong choice. <laughs> yeah, I disagree. <laughs> Because what it boils down to is trying to convince women that, no, 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 if you just raise your children better, mm -hmm. then it will fix the world. And if you don't have children, no, 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 you're also contributing because mm -hmm. we need mm -hmm. all of these other the cook mothers. Yeah. It's helping. It's helping raise good children. Then yeah. if we actually believe that, then we would do the things that make that possible changing society to make sure every every mother who wants to stay home and raise her children mm -hmm. and not work can do so no mm -hmm. one is actually treating women who aren't mothers as if they are no 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 your voice is yeah. as valuable in motherhood no they're not yeah it's a nice story you have to walk the walk if you walk the walk then i believe you believe that yeah so I think she, she thinks she believes she believes it but she yeah. didn't. But I think that's a simplification of the six-point arguments that they make, yeah. which is an easy way to kind of say, oh, they just say, ladies belong in the kitchen. And, you know, that's their argument. But it's not. That's not actually it at all. I think it, to me it's a, much, it's a fundamental debate about the halls of power. Yeah. Where do we want the halls of power to be? Are we going to say the halls of power are in the Capitol building and in the voting booth, and those are indeed the halls of power? Or are we going to say, no, that's not the kind of power that is the future of America, and instead say the halls of power are the streets of our community, the halls of power are our neighborhoods? You know, it's such a catchword today with building community and local mm -hmm. everything, and that's really what she was saying is that if we shift our focus to politics, we will stop being engaged in our local communities in meaningful, direct ways. And mm. instead, we'll hand it all over to government programs and then we'll be like, well, there we go. That's that's the best that we could do. And that's a masculine energy system, <laughs> which isn't the way of the future. And I guess my final word would be, you don't get to decide that for other women, right? Uh, you don't get to tell me that I uh -huh. don't get to access that route uh -huh. because you think this route is better. Okay. Uh-huh. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Liberty. Yes, liberty. Liberty. What if we decouple all the ideas of gendered energy from the whole thing and just exactly. let individuals See? bring their yes. individual energy and you yes. can however you want. I know. And still that, be in the halls of power. I know. I know. See, that, that's just the dream. That. I think it's the 21st century dream. What if we could call it aggressive energy, soft energy, collaborative energy, and just separate it completely from genders and all people can have all the energy? Mm. Yes. There. Problem solved. Let's just do that. <laughs> Sweetest flower in all the world, everybody knows, from the emblem of the you're So that's her politics. I don't think it defined her, though. I think mm. she thinks politics is not the thing to focus on. It's mm -hmm. not the thing that is going to save the world. What's going to save the world is love and support in your community. Mm. Six years after her marriage, so she's, what, 44? Mm. She has a child, Henry. And her husband just so happens to be a physician at the forefront of the use of anesthesia in obstetric patients. <laughs> so how about that? And she did not die, despite <laughs> her age. So now she's got her domestic scene. She has a son. She has her five servants. <laughs> And Freeman keeps being Freeman. For example, this article from the Boston Globe, February 11th, 1927. Dr. Freeman Allen, prominent back bay specialist, was the prominent hero who rescued five-year-old Arthur Cushing of School Street, Brookline, from an almost certain death at the waters of Leverett Pond in Brookline Park yesterday afternoon. Dr. Allen was riding along the path, accompanied by Dr. Friend Lund of 527 Beacon Street, Throwing off his hat and his coat, he started to wade into the water. He saw the head of the coaching boy just above some ice, and the child looked as though he was keeping above the water by holding on to the ice cake. Dr. Allen said that the rescue looked like a cinch. Someone tied a rope about his waist and he went into the water. When he had waded out where the water line reached his chin, he grabbed the youth and carried him towards shore. Dr. Allen managed to reach a ladder, which was pushed toward him and placed the boy on this. The lad was pulled ashore, and after the untangled himself from the rope, Dr. Allen with Dr. Lund worked on the Cushing boy and revived him. He is a specialist in administrating anesthetics, and because of that, is an expert in respiration work. No persons at the scene obtained the names of Dr. Allen or Dr. Lund. They were modest enough to keep quiet about it. A Globe man learned of this this morning and obtained the name of Dr. Allen from the riding school. When called upon at his home, he did not want to discuss the rescue, and in his modest way said, It was a cinch. Any in that large crowd standing on the shore when he got there could have accomplished it before our arrival. But apparently, no one attempted it but the doctor. He's just so cool. He's the, oh, what's the, the word for the cartoon? He's a, the person who does oh, it. Oh, he's a batar. He's a batar. He's the person who just does the thing when, when it's needed. Yeah, he did. And then, in 1930, when he was 59, he died. Hmm. Heart failure at home had always been the story. Dr. Freeman Allen was quite beloved here in Boston. Um, and then there was a researcher who was doing work about 10 years ago and went to interview the family, the Allen family. And they let him know that there had been a family secret about his death, uh, that in fact he had not died of a heart attack, but unfortunately had committed suicide. 
and he was actually in institutions uh, being treated for both depression and uh, addiction to morphine for the final five years of his life. Um, this was, in fact, common for a lot of physicians at the time to become addicted. In fact, Freeman Allen's own mother had become addicted to morphine after she was prescribed it after childbirth. His grandmother was Harriet Beecher Stowe. So this daughter of Harriet Beecher Stowe fought a morphine addiction. And the descendants of the family, they produced a pack full of secret letters between Freeman and Ethel. Hmm. I think a lot of the way he wrote to her gives us a sense for not only that she was incredibly loyal to him during this time, but was also very supportive in a way I think was kind of modern. My darling Ethel, however disgraceful it may be, it is a nervous breakdown and is a disease that must be treated, and this essential fact is what I have been losing sight of right along. As you say, I must recognize that I am ill and being treated radically for a serious trouble. And I think that's the phrase there. As you say, she is telling him, right, that depression and addiction is an illness. This is something to be treated, um, which at this time, this was a moral failing, that especially a physician should not have been fighting. And towards the end of his life, he was writing to her almost every single day. And every letter, almost every letter, would start with, thank you for your letter. Thank you for your letter. He always would thank her for her kindness. So she was writing to him every single day while also raising their son alone. In doing research for this tour, I stumbled upon another uh, collection that had been donated by the Allen family, and it was a little booklet by Mary Ethel, a collection of her poems. Uh, we didn't really know much that she had been a poet. That's always what we thought her brother was doing. He was the writer here in the family. Um, but they were written in 1931, so the year after her husband's death. I have one of them here because they're really working through a lot of her grief, but I think this one here captures a lot of where her kind of heart lied. Uh, like I shared with you all, she was an avid horseback rider. Uh, she would do that often with her husband. Uh, and this was entitled Hunting Days. Love, how can it be on days like these, with autumn painted grass and trees, a riot of color on the hills and laughing water in the rills, you are so far away from me. You who loved every field and tree as we jogged out those sparkling morns to meet the hounds and hear the horns, to fly together over a wall, to pause, to wait the master's call, to shout a warning, check our steed, then off again at breakneck speed. Oh, darling, come and let us race again through life at that mad pace. When hounds give cry and hoofs fly past, come back, come back, oh happy past. Unfortunately, about seven years after writing this poem, in 1938, she will pass away herself at the age of 65. We don't know the cause of death. Mm. Well, she's helping in TB hospitals. Yeah.
Ethel Gibson Allen really gets me thinking about masculine power and feminine power, and it's such an interesting thought experiment to think. Hmm. What if women hadn't bought into the masculine political system? What if she had had her way? What would society look like today? That is a fascinating question. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to get to share her story in the house now with you all. She lived here in this house three quarters of her entire life. Oftentimes, as someone who studies women in history and listens to podcasts like these, we're told that, you know, for women to be worthy of discussion, they must be extraordinary, right? They have to be the revolutionaries, the groundbreakers, the mold breakers, all of those sorts of things. Um, but in many ways, Ethel was very ordinary. You know, she's a privileged woman born into a social elite life that allowed her to have perspectives like being anti-suffrage and those sorts of things. Um, and although that might complicate her story in our eyes, I think it helps round out the picture for what it was like to be a woman during the turn of the century and helps us kind of fill in the pieces to what is women's history as a whole. Special thanks to Sarah Hagland at the Gibson House Museum. Next time you're in Boston, definitely swing by and check it out. This episode was recorded on site by Shelby Durant and Mark Nelson, and I want to extend a special thanks to everyone who attended the Lost Women of New England tour. Our readings were by Caleb Slama, James Henderson, and Mark Nelson, and Natalie Thompson performed the anti-suffrage rose, which you can find on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, together with lots of photos of Ethel and Freeman, including my favorite where they are just beaming at each other, and photos of the house from our visit, and my collection of fascinating anti-suffrage materials. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah.